0: Sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is.
1: We want to be evidence based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice.
0: Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations
1: with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key
0: issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi, my name is Jo Wilkinson. I'm with the Queensland Professional Education Committee. I'm here today to talk with Brianne Hetherington. Brianne is the Principal Specialist Clinician for Child Safety here in Queensland. And today we're going to be talking about restrictive practices. What are they and what do speech pathologists need to know? Hi Brianne, thanks for joining us. Hi Joe, how are you? I'm good thanks. It's really great to have you here today to chat about this area. I know that you've developed a lot of knowledge in the area of restrictive practice, but you did not always have this understanding, maybe earlier in your career. At what point did you start to become aware of the issue of restrictive practices? Um, I was having a bit of a think about this, and I guess
1: for me, I realised that I first saw restrictive practices as when I was a new graduate working in a regional hospital, but at the time I didn't actually understand what they were. And so sometimes what I saw didn't really sit right with me, but I couldn't actually articulate or explain why. Um, and other times I guess I just accepted the reason that people explained um, for why they were using a strategy. So often people would say, oh, we're doing it to keep someone safe. And I didn't really think much beyond that. When I first started working in disability services here in Queensland, A little bit later on in my career, I was working with adults in group homes and many of them had complex disability and they often engaged in challenging behaviour and were therefore subject to restrictive practices. And soon after starting in that area, there was the introduction of legislative changes here in Queensland, um, specifically Part 6 of the Disability Services Act And so when those changes came into play, if an adult with an intellectual or cognitive disability was engaging in behaviours that caused harm and they um, needed to have restrictive practices used to help support them, um, then there was a whole legislative framework brought in which looked at authorisation and there needed to be a positive behaviour support plan that helped explain why someone needed those restrictive practices and how we would work towards reducing them. So at that point in time, um, I would sort of contribute to communicational mealtime assessments as part of a positive behaviour support plan. But again, if I'm actually honest, I did that without a real understanding of positive behaviour support or restrictive practice. I sort of naively thought that was, you know, the responsibility of the positive behaviour support plan writer who was often a psychologist. Um, And so I was doing this work not necessarily truly understanding what it was that I was sort of feeding into in the bigger picture. Um, And then, for the last five years that I sort of worked in disability services, I worked in a statewide practice team. And we were providing clinical advice to clinicians within the department and also to the sector. And that included advice around how to support adults um, and children who may engage in challenging behaviour. And I was. Really, quite fortunate in that position because my immediate um, manager was Sharon Paley, and she's a learning disability nurse by background from the UK, and she's actually recognised internationally for her work in restraint reduction. So for me, that was really when things started to change because of the nature of the work I was doing on a day-to-day basis, and I had a manager who constantly challenged my practice as speech pathologist. I really started to learn a lot more about restrictive practices and positive behaviour support um, and to think about, you know, what does this mean in my work as a speech pathologist? I guess, um, you know, in that role I was also really quite fortunate to have the opportunity to spend time with other um, practitioners um, who are very passionate about restraint reduction and are really um, very willing to share their information And so, you know, again, they all challenged me, um, but also really supported me to think about how to incorporate this knowledge um, of restrictive practices into my work as a speech pathologist.
0: I guess there are probably a lot of people that are in that space that you were in a long time ago, learning to understand about this area. Can you tell us a little bit about what restrictive practice is and some different types of restrictive practice?
1: So, um, I guess restrictive practices are any strategy that we that might impinge on someone's human rights or restrict their freedom of movement, and we usually. Um, use that in response to challenging behaviour. Although sometimes what can happen is that we might use uh, or you might see approaches being used more generally that influence someone's behaviour even though it's not in response to that immediate harm. So um, like an example that I remember, we had a number of sort of long-stay patients on the ward who often had dementia Um, So you would see medication prescribed for their behaviour. I remember once getting a referral for a gentleman who wasn't eating breakfast in the morning because he was still asleep. And when you had a look at the medication charts, what you saw was that he was getting prescribed quite large doses of medication in the early hours of the morning because he was being disruptive on the ward you know, verbalising and being up and walking when everyone else was trying to sleep. So, you know, what people were doing was using that medication. Um, I also saw things like straps, um, sort of vests with straps to keep people into chairs, wandering alarms um, to let people know when people had left the ward, um, the use of bed rails to keep people in beds. Uh I've also worked with individuals who have um, engaged in self-interest behaviour and might have uh, sort of mechanical restraints like arm guards or helmets that have been recommended to help manage that. Uh, Other situations I've seen is where there's been restricted access to foods, Um, and I'll admit sometimes I've recommended that as part of a mealtime support plan. Again, when I didn't understand what a restrictive practice was, that seemed like a really logical way to keep someone safe, Um, but I didn't understand what it was that I was recommending when I was doing that. Sometimes what you'll see is that the person themselves or those around them can become really quite upset when we recommend those practices, uh, a bit like what I was talking about with the mum and the young boy. Um, But I guess sometimes what I also often see is that people will jump straight to these restrictive practices. Um, And not usually with bad intent, they may not necessarily understand what it is that they're Um, recommending and that it could be considered a restrictive practice Um, but we also I've seen situations where people sort of jump to that really um, extreme end of management strategies without really stopping and thinking why might someone be engaging in that behavior what else can we do and if we do think it is the most appropriate strategy what's our plan to actually work towards reducing those practices and I think sometimes as well what we see is that people can get so focused on the risk of the behaviour that they don't necessarily stop to consider whether or not that response actually achieves the desired outcome or is proportionate to the risk presented by the behaviour. And I think that's, um, you know, when we're looking at it from a human rights perspective, is really important to keep in mind that we don't want to be... Um, bringing these restrictions into someone's life if it isn't actually achieving the purpose that we hope it is or that we're wanting to achieve or if we're actually um, potentially bringing more risk or introducing more risk to a situation.
0: I could see that a couple of things you said there about practices that seem logical to keep people safe may strategies that are used when we don't have a good understanding of restrictive practice. I find it really interesting to hear these stories. Can you talk to me more about the consequences that you've seen for any of your clients who have experienced restrictive practice? Like I said, I think
1: sometimes um, we can see that it can be quite distressing for them. Um, I think sometimes, though, particularly if, um, if people already live in restricted environments They may be so used to it, unfortunately, that it's just another restriction in their life. Um, What we also know is that for some restrictive practices, for example, physical restraint, there is the risk of injury um, or death. So uh, there's a lot of literature in the UK, for example, that looks at restraint-related deaths um, subsequent to physical Restrain, and that's usually because of positional asphyxiation. Uh, and also we don't necessarily think about the trauma that can also be associated with the use of some of these practices, um, such as seclusion or physical restraint. And so that trauma can not only be to the person that's subject to it um, or subject to those practices, uh, but it can also be when restraints go wrong, the people that have applied them, it can be quite um, traumatic for them. And also those that witness uh, restrictive practices as well, it can be quite traumatic. So for example, working in the child protection system, Uh, You know, we often have young people who engage in high-risk behaviour. We may have to step in to manage a situation um, through something like emergency use of a physical restraint. But, you know, we have to think about the other children around them because if they've come from an environment where they've been exposed to family domestic violence, for example, what they witness um, could be quite upsetting. So... um, you know it's always
0: useful to consider those aspects as well. Can you describe the way your practice has changed over time when you became more aware and developed more understanding of restrictive practice? Um, I guess for me
1: it really makes me stop and think about um, what it is that I might be recommending you know so like I said in the past, where I've sort of would suggest that you hold someone's hand during a meal times or during a meal to stop them from eating at a fast rate, or have suggested that food gets locked up at the time. I may not have actually considered whether or not these could be considered a restrictive practice. Um, I think the other thing that um, I reflected or sort of consider is the fact that often I got so focused on the outcome that you know I was doing this to keep someone safe or to stop them from choking I didn't necessarily stop it but step it back and sort of go well why was the person at risk Um, so coming back and always trying to think about why someone is engaging in that behavior and that's part of what positive behavior support is about as well it's doing assessments to understand why someone engages in a challenging behaviour and when we think about and understand the why that is when we can start to create a better fit for the person and the environment that they're in as well as teach them skills so that they no longer have to um, engage in that behaviour. Uh, The other thing that I think it's also made me mindful of is about working and thinking about the what else can we do differently so that we can actually start to fade out these um, sorts of practices because sometimes what will happen is that they'll become the go-to. Everyone jumps in and uses a restrictive practice. We don't think about the whys and the what else can we dos um, and we don't think about how
0: we can reduce it. So as you've changed the way you work, have you found that other people are happy to make these changes as well? Or have you met any resistance in trying to reduce restrictive practice in some situations? Uh, I
1: think that really varies. Sometimes uh, for some people it's a relief because they didn't necessarily feel comfortable with the situation, but they didn't understand why. And then when you sit there and explain it... um, there you know suddenly things start to make sense for them and then everyone can get on the same page and think about well what else can we be doing differently Uh, there are situations where that change can be a lot harder um, and you know some of the work that the likes of uh, Brodie Patterson and Michael Nuno have done looking at um, you know toxic environments for example where um, they sort of environments where there could be quite high use of restrictive practices. Um, but looking to the literature on those to- toxic or corrupt cultures uh, and also some of the literature that's out there around restraint reduction because we know what's needed to actually work towards reducing restrictive practices. So um, sometimes I find it interesting to use that to, I guess, try to understand why people might be stuck. Here in Queensland, um, what I've been finding really exciting in um, since the start of this year is the Human Rights Act has been implemented implemented here in Queensland, so. What we've been doing is sort of when we've been trying to get people to think about positive behaviour support and how can we um, get people thinking about how to support an individual in least restrictive ways, um, we can actually look towards the Human Rights Act because there is a really nice framework here in Queensland at the moment that sort of gets us to think about if we are um, needing to impinge on someone's human rights, are we doing it in the least restrictive way Um, Is it proportionate? Does it achieve its outcome? And I think uh, that's part of the reason why I'm so interested in restrictive practices as well, which is, you know, it's so important to understand this from that human rights perspective. You know, as speech pathologists, we can work with really vulnerable groups, um, you know, be it those with mental health difficulties, those with dementia, um, children who engage in challenging behaviours in schools or in other environments. Um, And they might be supported in ways that restrict their human rights and when you bring in that challenging behaviour, that potential to be supported in even more restrictive ways
0: um, which can further impact on their human rights is there. Quite a lot of the questions that I've had from people I work with are around working with children and where that line is between what might be a normal typical restriction you'd place on a child to keep them safe and what is a restrictive practice? I don't know if you have any further comments on that.
1: Um, that's a question
0: that I'm
1: faced with on a daily basis as well. You know, what what's the difference between um, a typical parenting strategy and a restrictive practice? And it's tricky because sometimes legislation will be the thing that defines that. So, you know, with the NDIS Quality and Safeguard, what a parent does might be considered a restrictive practice under, if you look at it from a literature perspective, but because they're not a funded provider, it may not be considered a restrictive practice under legislation. Um, You know, it's something that I sort of try to keep people coming back to, uh, things like what would be accepted um, societal norms. So, for example, locking the front door, that's a question that we always have. You know, um, many of us lock the front door, but we lock the front door to keep people out rather, to keep, rather than keeping ourselves in the house. And we can leave at any point in time. If you've got young children in the house, maybe you're locking that door because they don't have skills to keep themselves safe. But as a parent, what you're also doing is teaching that child skills And so you're helping them to develop the skills, which mean that they have road safety, they have stranger danger. And so as the child develops, then what we can start to do is to reduce the locking of doors. Um, And, you know, the children get to a point where what they can do is they can go up and ask you, either they can unlock the door themselves and let them out or they'll ask you. So I think sometimes looking at some of our strategies in the context of sort of accepted norms the development of the child um, and coming back to the whys why are we doing it is always a really useful question as well
0: if you had to think about a core message that you think all speech pathologists should know about restrictive practice what message do you think is really important for clinicians working in the area
1: I think just coming back and being able to identify what a restrictive practice is, is important in so many ways. What we know is that being able to define restrictive practices is really important as part of restraint reduction and, you know, when we're working with individuals we don't want them to be supported in ways that bring unnecessary restrictions in their life. once we are able to identify restrictive practices it also means that as um, a speech pathologist we can ensure that we don't accidentally recommend a restrictive practice in um, in it when supporting uh, clients so you know i once started to think about all of the different mealtime support strategies that i've recommended in the past once i understood more about restrictive practices and really the potential is that we could recommend a strategy that could be considered physical restraint or restricting access to items. Um, so when we can actually define a restrictive practice it helps us to sort of start to think about um, well what is it that I'm doing, why am I doing it and could it be considered a restrictive practice. I think the other thing is that um, within the context of the NDIS here in Australia and the quality and safeguarding framework, it also means that sometimes as a therapist, people might um, ask us why a therapeutic strategy shouldn't be considered a restrictive practice. Um, And when you've started to understand more about restrictive practices, that helps you to be able to, I guess, engage in those conversations more confidently and I mean, you may still get to the point where everyone collectively agrees that the strategy is a restrictive practice, um, but other times what, when you've got a good understanding of what a restrictive practice is um, and you've started to incorporate that into your framework as a speech pathologist, what you might be able to do is actually be able to justify why a strategy should be considered a therapeutic intervention rather than a restrictive practice. Thanks.
0: It's certainly a really complex issue but it sounds like when we're starting with that level of awareness and asking some of those questions, the why, the how and the what, that's a good place to start. I think as well there is a lot of good information available now about restricted practice for people to look into further as well. Okay we might need to finish up there then. Thank you so much for your time, Brianne. It's been really interesting to have a chat about restrictive practice. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and from your own experiences. It's been really interesting to hear and we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Joe. We
1: hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.